So I think I'll just start with a reading from the year 399, which is a long time ago, from St. Augustine. A lot of things have changed since then, and then again some things maybe haven't. He writes, people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains and at the huge waves of the seas. People wonder at the long course, courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, wonder at the circular motion of the stars, and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. Kind of haunting. Walk right past themselves without ever wandering. Today's inquiry is such a powerful one. Who am I without my story? We're certainly beginning to bring investigation and wonder. So one of the, in many ways, one of the most radical teachings in the Dharma is this teaching of no self or no personal identity. It goes very much against Descartes. I think, therefore I am. This teaching may rub up against our name, our status, our stature, our roles, and also can feel downright mysterious. What? No self? Who could I be without me, without my story? Heck, every day I look in the mirror, it's me, though I do look a little bit different than 50 years ago. (laughs) But where is this me? Is it in my head here? Well, I don't know, a lot of it's gone. Is it in my body here, nails, teeth, and skin? There's a whole practice on the foundation of the body, on body parts. And one of the main teachings within that practice is where is the me to be found? Is it in, in my stomach? In my intestines, small and large, in my brain, in my lungs, my heart? Is it in the elements that actually make up these parts? The elements of solidity, like the earth, liquidity, like water, motion, like the air, temperature, like fire. Where is this me? So Emily Dickinson, she writes... I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. But don't tell. They'd banish us, you know. How dreary to be somebody, how public like a frog, to tell your name the live long day to an admiring bog. I'm nobody. Who are you? It's interesting to note that the current um, observations in neuroscientists, neuropsychologists, is that they have actually yet to find a self in the brain. Rick Hansen writes in um, The Buddha's Brain that it's indeed tempting to think, to believe that the self must be your body and mind, but these two are changing. So Rick says, 
from the neurological standpoint, the everyday feelings of being a unified self is an utter illusion. The apparently coherent and solid I is actually built from many subsystems and sub-subsystems over the course of development with no fixed center. And the fundamental sense that there is a subject of experience is fabricated from a myriad of disparate moments of subjectivity. That's quite a bit to be said there. But it's interesting that in neuroscientists, neuropsychologists, the, they're not able to find a location where the self exists. And when we consider the body, these are some human body factoids. Uh, there's a new stomach lining that's produced every five days, a new liver every six weeks. We replace head hair two to five years, unless, of course, you're like me. There's eyebrows. Those get replaced every three to five months. You, you have new skin that grows on you once a month. There's a new skeleton every seven years. There's 50,000 cells will die and be replaced by new ones while you listen to me read this sentence. That's right. Radioactive isotype studies show that the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So in other words, in any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they are composed of atoms. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the same as it was yesterday nor will it be tomorrow. It's actually very interesting that in Buddhist psychology, the mind is actually considered a sense organ. And I just want to invite you to try this on. So I know in our Western world, we have our five senses of the eyes that see, the tongue that tastes, the ears that hear, the nose that smells, the body that feels. In Buddhist psychology, the mind is considered a sense organ in that what does the mind do? It thinks, it analyzes, it scrutinizes, it compares, it contrasts, it has various emotions. It's just what it does, just like the nose smells. So I'm not necessarily asking you to believe that, but it's interesting to try that on. Just as the eyes are built to see, the tongue to taste, and so forth, the mind is built to, to think, to analyze, to scrutinize, compare, contrast, so forth. It's a mental processing plant. Perhaps it can also be considered akin to hardware and software. I like this as a metaphor. The human being has the hardware. It's equipped with body senses, the eyes that see, the tongue that tastes, and so forth, and the mind that thinks. It's part of the hardware. It's the function of this operating plant. The software, particularly when it comes to the mind, is like the lenses which we see ourselves through that have been programmed through the experiences and the stories of our lives. It's familiar, it's habitual, becomes deeply embedded into who we think we are and further reinforced by those who, uh, that are close to us. These stories can be a blessing and they can be incredibly painful. 
a good friend of mine, he grew up with four other brothers and a father who was a retired uh, submarine commander. And unfortunately, his mother died when he was like about eight years old. So it was these four or five boys and the retired submarine commander. And dad did the best that he could. But, you know, it was kind of a smaller house and my friend was very tall, like about 6'5". being an eight, nine-year-old, you know, pretty clumsy. And so he was given a nickname in the house. So I trust you'll feel the gravity of this nickname. He was called King Minus. <laughs> Everything you touch breaks. Yeah. Fortunately, there's a happy ending to this story because he grew up feeling that way to some degree the sense of deficiency. This was his story, his belief, reinforced by those around him, even making Joe go, here comes King Minus again. But fortunately, there's a happier ending or unfolding, is that as he got more deeply involved in the path of awakening, he could begin to recognize this story that he had somehow internalized and believed and thought this was who he was. And really began to discover that is not who he is. And that this belief in himself was a limited definition, as we've been talking about. Some of the stories that we've been told are incredibly painful that we can carry throughout our lives. It's another kind of a funny story of a physical therapist that was working with a person that had a kind of a leg problem and through some weeks of physical therapy, the person's leg improved and they were walking quite well. And one day after an appointment together, they it was getting close to lunch, the patient left, and just a few minutes later, the physical therapist left to go down the street to get a sandwich at a restaurant and happened to look across the street and the patient was walking with somebody all limping again, like as if the first visit. And like, oh, what the, the, what's going on, the physical therapist thought. And next time they had an appointment, the physical therapist asked the Patient, what's going on here? You've been doing very well. And I saw you just last week walking down the street right after our appointment, limping all again. He goes, oh yeah, I was walking with one of my family members and they wouldn't recognize me any other way. (laughs) So that may be more of a metaphor, but it's a teaching story of at times how we get so deeply identified and ingrained in these definitions of who we are. Buddhist psychology also speaks about what is the self and one category that they put it in, as well as a, that there's a mind, mental process and a material process, but another way is that the, the, a self is made of five heaps, sometimes called the five aggregates. Another friend of mine calls it the five piles. <laughs> but anyways, and one pile is the body, its parts, its elements, Another part is the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Another part is the mind objects, or perhaps more easily said, all the different thoughts and emotions. Another pile is our perceptions, how we see the world through our conditioning that develops this narrative-based self, this I, me, and my. And then the consciousness, this is what interacts with the body, the feelings, the thoughts and emotions, the perceptions. But ultimately, all of this is very much subject to impermanence. 
And in many ways, we begin to discover how impersonal it all is. The teachings of no-self come out of the Anatta Lakana Sutta. This is the second discourse or the teaching that the Buddha taught to uh, these former five ascetics. And in this teaching of the Anatta Lakana Sutta, he speaks about these three marks that we've been actually working with these past days of dukkha, suffering or dissatisfactoriness, anicca, which is impermanence, and anatta, the sense of no self. The Buddha says, Therefore, O monks, whatever forms of the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, so again he's referring to these five heaps or piles, whether it be in the past, future, or present, Internal or external, coarse or fine, low or lofty, far or near, all these aggregates, these piles, must be regarded with proper wisdom. According to reality, thus these are not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. This is from the Buddha in the Anatta Lakana Sutta. We can say that this speaks to a type of uh, confusion around ourselves that's similar to watching a movie and getting so caught in the drama. And yet when the movie is broken down, we see that even the actors, the actresses, that it's made up of just one frame of a time. It's very fleeting, but there's a sense of continuity that's developed. Just like there's a sense of continuity in our multiple experiences of thoughts and emotions and perceptions And it creates this cohesive narrative that I call me, myself, and I. From the point of view of Buddhist psychology, we can begin to free ourselves from this type of unawareness and suffering. And the limitations of this narrative self, the I, me, and my, as we begin to awaken, to begin to see more clearly of the definitions that this seemingly self has created. Achan Chah often speaks about jokingly, no self and no problem. I'd like to read something from Margaret Wheatley that speaks about the importance of awareness. She writes, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. And we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created, we self-seal. We don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. When we can succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with awareness, then we have a chance of changing. We can break the sail. We can notice something new. This noticing something new is shifting from, I guess what we speak about sometimes in psychology of the narrative-based self, this I, me, and mine story, to more of an immediate or immediacy of a here and now type self, living in the freshness of the present moment.
One of the deepest sources that fuels our suffering, our pain, is unawareness. The antidote of unawareness is awareness, mindfulness. When we can recognize that we're in a trap or recognize that moment that we're spinning off a story and deeply identified with it, in that moment of that recognition, that awareness, we can begin to step out of the story. We can begin to see through the misconceptions, the fabrications, the constructs, that drive a deep sense of separation fueled by our own greed and hatred, ignorance, or unawareness. I know, and actually this came up a little bit today, like, well, it's a little bit scary to consider, well, who am I without my story? Or sometimes I'll actually hear people talk about, well, I'm really scared to get enlightened because I'll lose myself. So that might have some humor, but I think that's, that's a real question for a number of people. And my sense of it is that the only thing that you lose is those parts of you that never served you. You get to have your cake and eat it. The only parts you lose is the parts that don't serve you. Our own greed, our own hatred, our own ignorance. When the sense of separation begins to dissolve and the sense of uh, connection, perhaps even interconnection, grow, we can begin to feel more at home inside our being, inside our universe. Achan speaks about the trees, very like this teaching. He goes, if you have wisdom wherever you go, you will be carefree. The whole world is already fine as it is. All the trees in the forest, they're already fine as they are. There's tall ones, short ones, hollow ones, all kinds. And they're simply the way that they are. Though ignorant of their true nature, we go and force our opinions on the trees. Oh, this tree is too short, this one is too hollow, this one is too big, this one is too small. But hello, these trees are just simply trees they're better off than we are. When we can begin to recognize this sense of the fixed, bring awareness to this sense of a fixed and separate self, and recognize how we can become enslaved by it, of course this recognition gives us a brief moment, a taste of freedom. Just like today, I just love that exercise that Anna did this morning about the magical eraser. (laughs) And we just erased each thing. And for many of us, there was just a sense of presence. For some, that might have been a little bit unsettling, but for many, it felt very spacious, felt very kind. I also want to say that um, there's a lot of references in the literature about the Buddha attaining the unconditioned. It's interesting that they use that word. And to me, one of the meanings that it could be is that he saw through the conditioned self. Saw through greed, hatred, unawareness, ignorance. 
saw through the stories, the constructs, the fabrications. Perhaps that's what it means to experience more of the unconditioned is breaking free of this conditioning that has been fueled at times with our own greed, hatred, ignorance. We can experience more freedom. Acham Buddha Dasa, he says nothing, he was a Thai forest master, he goes, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. To understand this is to heal all illness and sorrow. Let yourself be still without grasping or resisting. The wise person lives with an open and free heart that does not cling to anything. This is the peace of nirvana, the peace of freedom. It is always here, available whenever we let go. So there came a time in the Buddha's journey that after practicing so many different meditation practices and practicing self-mortification and realizing the futility of the punishing of the body and decided to go out on his own and ending up sitting underneath a tree that later became known as the Bodhi tree, the tree of awakening and taking an internal vow that he was that there wasn't any other place to go, that it was in his heart and he needed to look within. And it was underneath this great tree, and there's a whole vigil of Mara trying to distract him, but every time that Mara came, Siddhartha Gautama, soon to be the Buddha, said, I see you, Mara, and foiled his attempts. But it was there in the third watch of the night that the Buddha had four sparkling realizations. These became known as the Four Noble Truths, but there were four sparkling realizations, the noble truth of suffering. That there is indeed suffering, and we don't need to go into it too much. I mean, if we counted the people in this room, let's say there's like 37, 38 of us here, there's 37, 38 people, 38, 37 sufferings. Death rate is one per person. The noble truth of suffering, the second noble truth of realization is that there is a cause. That's pretty good news. He realized with deep penetrating insight that there's a cause to this. This is what I want to focus on for the rest of the evening. And of course, from this cause, he realized that there was a path and a way of lessening and ending suffering. So I'd like to um, read one of the most amazing renderings of the noble truth of the cause of suffering from uh, Achen Amaro, who's an English and is a, a monk in the Thai forest tradition. So he says this, This, monks, is the noble truth of the cause of suffering. And it is crazing, craving, <laughs> Crazing, that's another word, (laughs) almost the same thing. It is craving that is compelling, 
and intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now here and now there, and namely it's the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. It's very powerful. I'll read it again. This monks is the noble truth of the cause of suffering, and it is craving that is compelling and intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now here and now there. It is namely the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. Now, the reason that I'm bringing this up is these cravings, but actually even underneath these cravings is this root of unawareness, of ignorance, that these is what sets in motion the fabrications, the constructions. This is what sets the cycle of dependent origination. My teacher, Tampulu Sato, this teaching of dependent, origina- bleh, dependent origination is a, a cause and effect. This happens, that happens. But very simply put, it's a, it's a causal chain of how suffering continues on. And my teacher, Tampulu Sato, he said, if you know, it will break. If you don't know, you will go round and around. So the knowing is the knowing of the grasping, the unawareness that leads to immense suffering. Achan Amro speaks about craving that is compelling and intoxicating, that brings us into birth, into things again and again. So I want to just take a little closer look at these particular three that he speaks about. The first is the craving for sensual delight. And, you know, we could possibly say there's some reference that's like almost like the eros instinct. Have you ever, in the room here, has anyone ever felt craving that felt compelling and intoxicating? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shopping, sex, food, toys, travel. You could probably name a lot of different things that like, we really get off on. And... Um, you know, and I don't want to give a bad rap on these things, but when we know in our awareness that it's compelling and it's intoxicating, it's, there's a change in physiological, uh, it's, we're not that much in ease, right? We're not that much in ease. Part of this ever-seeking delight, now here and now there. I remember one time I was eating vanilla tofuti ice cream. I'm a vegan, so I was eating tofuti ice cream, and I'm loving it. And I'm eating my ice cream and I'm just in satiation. And then I notice there's one spoonful left. (laughs) And I just remember this overwhelming feeling of sadness. What am I going to do? I thought, well, I could get another bowl. Um, But it was showing me this sense of, what is this about something outside of myself that just brings, you know, like, like... I just can't have this lasting happiness. Like this is maybe part of an, the, the birth of addictive behavior. I just keep on trying to feed this in. Because inside there may be something that's actually feeling deficient, not whole, 
not enough. It's powerful for us to look at our strong and intoxicating, compelling desires here. And what's inside here? So I think just asking us to to take a look at this, investigate it. The next one, this is a huge one, the craving to be someone. Your super ego instinct. I, 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 I. I'm special. I'm a meditation teacher. I drive a Prius. I have this. I have that. I, I, I. The craving to be someone. Now, I also want to say that it's really important in our development that we do have bonding and attachment and sense of connection with, with those that we care about. But there's also another part of this that it's Endless thirst to be seen, to be known. And actually, you were bringing this up like, some, like I'm coming in without an identity, but I'm actually okay with who I am. I don't have to like, show my resume to you all to, to show you that I'm a worthwhile and great person. And when we begin to, it's a sense of that we leave ourselves. We're leaving ourselves for some type of a recognition from someone else to fulfill my worthiness, coming again from this core deficit of feeling separate and disconnected. Big one, the craving to be someone. It's like this old song, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. I'm looking for love in all the wrong places, outside of myself. The last one, and I touched upon this the other day, which is almost like the thanatos, the death instinct is the craving to feel nothing. So I shared that story about my son and just wanting to sleep. The craving to feel nothing is filled with avoidance, zoning out, doing anything but not feeling my pain, movies, reading, eating, sex, essentially anything that takes me away so that I just don't have to feel. All of these types of compelling, intoxicating craving, sensual delight, to be someone, to feel nothing, fuels our world of separation and suffering. When the Buddha awakened, he saw through this sense of the conditioned, the sense of isolation. We have moments like this in our lives. Maybe you've had moments here at Spirit Rocks. It's such a safe and sacred and beautiful place. Moments where we did feel connected. Moments maybe when we heard around the room and someone shared something and we all laughed and it was a moment of us being connected with each other. Paul Simon, he speaks about this moment of grace in a song called You Think Too Much. And it goes like this. Have you ever experienced a moment of grace when your brain just took a seat behind your face and everything was just funny? And everything was just sunny? Have you ever experienced a moment of grace? And I think that we know that moment. And maybe we've had it here. Just walking outside and just seeing something. It's a moment. It doesn't matter in that moment whether we live or die because we are everything. And then we fall back into this solidity of separateness at times. This is our task before us. 
This is what the Buddha awakened. So let us continue this journey of awakening. And may we find our hearts in coming home back to ourselves. Coming home back to ourselves. So i uh, read you one more poem. I'm actually doing good on time. And then we'll end with a short little sitting. So, the, well, actually, this is not a poem. It's a piece of prose. And I just love this one. It's from The Velveteen Rabbit by Marjorie Williams. What is real, asked the rabbit one day. Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time and not just plays with you, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit. Yes, sometimes it does, said the skin horse. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit, asked the rabbit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. To become real takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easy or who have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off. (laughs) And your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and you get very, very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly. Once you're real, you can't be ugly. Except to people who don't understand, once you're real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. Once you're real, you can't be unreal again. So my Burmese monk teacher, Tanpu Lucero, in some of his very last teachings that he taught us before he died was this very simple meditation that you would uh, actually use some phrases with the breath. And this meditation he talked about was a very good meditation to die with. But it is also a very good meditation to experience momentarily what it's like to feel completely free. So it's very simple. And so maybe just taking your seat for a few moments and need to stretch for a second is fine. So there's two sides to this practice. And so the first is, um, so we'll just become mindful of the breath in and out. So this meditation almost is like the magical eraser I'm just realizing right now. 
And so the first breath in and the breath out is allowing yourself to have the experience as you breathe in out that there's absolutely not even an iota of any clinging or grasping to anything in this moment. No greed rising with this breath in and breath out. So we'll just take a couple of breaths like this. Breathing in and out, no greed, or a sense of just generosity, spaciousness. No clinging. And then for the next few breaths, breathing in and out and experiencing what it feels like to have just no type of aversion, anger, hatred. As a matter of fact, maybe it's just a breath in and out of just love and contentment as it is. And now for the next couple of breaths or so, breathing in and out. No unawareness. You are completely aware that as you breathe in, you're breathing in, and you're breathing out as you're breathing out. This clarity of mind and heart. And so for a while, just working with the breath in and out, no clinging or grasping, just feeling free and ease. Breathing in and out, experiencing no aversion, no anger, no hatred, feeling a sense of contentment. Breathing in and out, the clarity of mind, the knowing of the breath in and out. This is the state of the heart of one who is free. May all beings be at peace. Thank you so much. And I actually, I feel very inspired to share with you one more thing. Um, Ten or more years ago, um, my wife gifted me with uh, a trip to Burma to see my teacher who was 92. His name was Langitzero. And um, so I was with him for a couple of weeks. And then on my last night, I was flying back to California. And I didn't know whether I'd ever see him again. And I loved this man so much. He's like my father. I lived with him for over eight years in a monastery. And Sero was a... You might not notice him in the room. He, he, he was the opposite of charisma. Utterly content and humble in his ways. 
And so I had one more question to ask Seto before I left. And that question was, Seto, you've been a monk since he was a boy. He's now 92. Many, many years. Over 70 years. I said, Seto, what are you going to do when death comes knocking at your door? I meant it. I was serious. I wanted to know. And he looked at me for a really long time. And then he smiled. And then he said to me, Bob, are you afraid to die? And it caught me off guard. Like, what? what wait, I didn't, I didn't know. He could see that he caught me off guard. Because that wasn't my question. <laughs> and he saw that and he said to me, you need to meditate more. <laughs> yes, Edo. And that's very true. And again, I asked Seto the same question. What are you going to do when death comes knocking at your door? You've been a monk all these years. You've been practicing mindfulness. And he looked at me again for a really long time. And then he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said to me, if I see something, I'll be mindful of seeing. If I hear something, I'll be mindful of hearing. If I see and smell something, I'll be mindful of those. If I feel something, I'll be mindful of that. If there's mind states that are going off in the mind, I will be mindful of mind states. This is how I'm going to die. This is how I want you to die. I told this to my my 100-year-old grandmother. She died at the age of 103, and she said to me, a Jewish grandmother from Russia, she says, you know, Bobby, he's a pretty wise guy. So she liked it, even at the age of 100. Die with awareness. So I pass that on to you. I hope to die with my eyes and heart wide open. And whatever it is for you, may it be with ease. But may we live our lives fully with ease. Thank you so much. So we'll take us a little bit of some stretching and we'll return for our last sit and chant. So we have about 15 minutes, a little bit over 15 minutes. <laughs> 